everybody. This is Rami, and you are listening to the Beyond Medicine podcast. Today's episode is with Dr. Jeff Toll, MD. He's a practicing physician from California, and he employs a model of medicine termed direct primary care. Some of you may know it as concierge medicine. It's a little bit different, but this model of medicine is really making waves, and a lot of doctors have taken to it. So today's episode focuses on helping us learn a little bit more about direct primary care, what goes into building a practice like this, and Dr. Jeff shares with us some of his struggles and the experience that he's had building this type of practice. So there's a lot of practical advice jammed into this episode, and I think you'll find it very useful. And I'm going to let Dr. Jeff take it away now. Uh, I have a direct primary care practice here in Los Angeles. Um, for those of you who don't know what that means, basically it's sort of like a membership model, membership based practice. So, um, you know, when I was in training and figuring out what I wanted to do, what type of practice I wanted to do, you know, we had the opportunity to work inside hospitals, to work inside outpatient internal medicine clinics and trying to figure out the best place for me. And really none of those models really allowed me to to get what I wanted out of medicine, which was to be able to really spend time with my patients, get to know them well, and um, really, you know, have the time that you really need dedicated for each person. So in the direct primary care model, instead of having like two or 3,000 patients, which is what most primary care doctors have, um, we instead uh, have around 200 or so patients per physician. Um, what, what each, uh, each, uh, patient in the practice pays a monthly fee to be part of the practice. And with that fee, basically patients have unlimited visits without any co-pays. They have always, you know, again, because we have so few patients in the practice, there's always same day visits available built into the schedule, our hour long visits, open spaces throughout the day where people can have walk-in visits. Um, all my patients have access to my email and text after hours, uh, as well through my, through my website, we have virtual visits. So I do virtual visits on patients who are not in my practice, but for those who are members of the practice, they can, uh, get free virtual visits. So if you're home or in the office with a cough or the flu or sinus infection, and it's too difficult to come into the office, I really try to use technology to make, uh, it easier to, you know access health services. I can get into that a little bit more later. Um, And then we also have discounted things like labs. Um, I have relationships with a lot of specialized labs. So for things like genetic testing, micronutrient testing, food sensitivity testing, all these type of additional things that aren't always covered by insurance in the first place, uh, I have established relationships with a lot of these companies so I can uh, get discounted. Uh, So a lot of times, if someone has a lot of medical problems that needs some of this workup, they may actually in the end save money um, by paying the monthly fee because of the discount they'll be able to get on some of the other things. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Um, so my question is, how did you first get, how did you first learn about direct primary care? Where did this kind of grow for you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So if ever, if everyone can't hear Rami, what he's asking me is how did I hear about this model? Um, and so, the truth is, when I was training uh, in medical school and residency, I had never really heard about a model like this, but I knew that the options out there were not really satisfactory to me. So um, as we all know from those, when you go to the doctor and you have to wait two weeks for an appointment, or if you go 
you know, for a same day visit and you wait for two hours and everyone around you is coughing and sneezing on you, it just doesn't make sense. That's not the, you know, every other industry has changed in the past 15 to 20 years, but medicine is kind of exactly the same as it was. Um, and I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be the one figuring out how to change it myself or whether there were people who had already kind of figured out something before me. But for about 15 or 20 years now, um, people have been experimenting with this direct primary care model. Um, I discovered actually another podcast, which um, is called Atlas MD. And that's a podcast that I don't think they're still doing it, but they it's these guys who kind of uh, established their own direct primary care practice maybe like five years ago. And they were kind of recording their idea of how to grow this thing um, and how to really make it work for their patients. So that was one thing that I had some books that I read as well, but that Atlas MD podcast really to try to get a very kind of baseline understanding of what this model is like. That was a really great place to start. So were you, were you kind of upset with the way, like when you were rotating or doing your rotations, were you kind of like upset at what you were seeing in practice? Cause that's kind of how I felt as I've been going through my rotations and seeing how just like, like doctors being miserable, having a ton of insurance things to deal with and you know not getting to spend a lot of time with patients that's what got me to kind of like start researching other ways is that kind of what sparked it for you or yeah so for people on my live that can't hear the question what he's asking is um what about uh other types of practices other than direct primary care kind of what about the traditional model of practice that i find unappealing and made it that i didn't want to do that and that's a great question so i think the, the traditional model, there's a lot of reasons why there's problems with it, in, in, at least in the U.S. So in the U.S., doctors are reimbursed uh, by insurance companies mainly for seeing patients physically in their office. So if I spend 45 minutes on a telephone call with someone in a traditional practice, I get $0.00. But if I spend three minutes with you in my office, I can make $70 uh, through insurance. So, you know that because of the way the reimbursement is i think that's the the starting point of why things are bad but in general i didn't ever want to be in a practice where i had to see 30 patients in a day if you if you see 30 patients in a day zero of those patients are getting good care Absolutely. so so a lot of times now people think of their primary care doctor as the gatekeeper to specialists and that's not how it should be your primary care doctor should basically be your doctor that takes care of everything, that knows your medical history, that knows what's me what medications you're on without even looking them up, um, and knows you well and knows your family well and understands kind of the social background of everything. You know, if you, if you have diabetes, we need to be talking to your family about what, what you guys are eating. We need to be talking about what restaurants you're going to. You know, just changing medications and sending people to specialists, to me, is a terrible way to practice and you know i just i didn't want to be taking care of people in a way where i was so limited by time and every when i interviewed at some you know whether you know some big institution some big really uh kind of prestigious internal medicine practices they all expect you to see about 20 to 25 patients a day awesome do you think the big appeal is the amount of time that you can spend with a patient because now that you have less 
like a smaller load of patients, you can really be more committed to each one? So it's a combination of it's appealing for me and it's appealing for the patient. So not only do I get I get to spend time where it's necessary. So if someone has their annual physical or if someone is following up on an important issue, I get to spend the real hour that's necessary. But if someone, you know, just needs a refill of a prescription, if someone just needs uh, to talk about their blood pressure, instead of coming in and wasting an hour of their time to park, sit in a lobby and wait for my appointment, you know, for, for things like blood pressure checks, I actually buy my patients a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff and they actually take their own readings at home. It eliminates white coat hypertension. And then instead of saying, okay, come to my office at 4 PM and wait for an hour for your visit, I literally log into their app, see what their blood pressures have been doing. And I can just email them or text them and say, Hey, I'm going to go up on your amlodipine by five milligrams. Let, let's have another check in next week. Boom. It takes 30 seconds of my time. It takes 30 seconds of my patient's time and it's just more convenient for everyone. And have your patients been overall happier with the type of practice that you've been doing? I would like to think my patients are happy. Um, I think in general, even not just in my practice, but in other uh, practices that are similar, um, patients are extremely happy. Obviously, you know, there's some costs associated with it. Not, not every single person can afford it, unfortunately. And we can kind of get into the fact that I think actually if the entire system changed to this, that everyone would be able to afford it. I think that's a really important point I want to get to later. Mm-hmm. But um, I do think that I get to know my patients extremely well. So not only am I able to have time in each visit, but I just I kind of am able to like recheck in with them frequently. So if they have a visit with a cough and you know, the flu or whatever it is, I'll text them a couple days later or, you, or the next day, how are you feeling? Are you getting better? Nothing's lost in translation. And, peop- and it, because I know them so well, um, it, it allows me to really take care of more than just their medical problems. It allows me to kind of guide their wellness in general and make sure we're being more proactive about health problems instead of kind of reactive to health problems. Do you think that you attract more people that are kind of the population of people that you would attract to your practice are people that are more committed to their health? I think it's a mix. So there are, are certainly people that reach out to me because they want a better way to be able to access their doctor. And so they come to me for that reason. I think, to be honest, so more of my patients are people who have kind of failed in the traditional system. So when someone has complex medical problems, So if someone has diabetes and high blood pressure and has had a heart attack in the past and has had a DVT in the past and they're on blood thinners and all these other problems, uh, instead of seeing five or six specialists when they can really get their care concentrated in one place, they tend to have less adverse events because one person is keeping an eye on everything instead of the specialist just keeping their eye on the one thing that they're in charge of. And so from that standpoint, I've met a lot of uh, patients who have just kind of failed the traditional system and they're looking for something different. And and I try to be able to really provide that. Awesome. I want to ask you also about the cost. Like, is this cost effective for patients and how does that work for them? So 
the truth is the way my cost system breaks down is it's mostly in relation to what type of services are wanted. So I have a tiered system in my practice. So the basic tier allows you to have, as I said, have basically the unlimited visits without copay, same day visits, virtual visits are free, emails after hours and all of those things. Um, for people look who have more medical problems and are looking for things like house calls, um, more directed care in the home particularly, um, I have to charge a little bit more for my time. I, I would like to be able to charge the same for everyone, but unfortunately, if someone is taking, it's really all about being fair to all my patients. Well, I wanted to, I, I asked you about cost, and I wanted to also ask about how does, how does that work out for you? Is it, is it work out better for you overall in terms of cost, like uh, your overhead? In terms your, of my income? Yeah. So, so I started my practice about six months ago. Um, you know, starting a medical practice is expensive. So for those of you who are like medical students or residents that are thinking about doing a practice like this, there's a lot of cost up front to get the ball rolling. So things that you may not even think about, but furniture for an office, insurance costs, hiring, supplies, medical supplies, um, you know, examination tables, rent, you know, so expect, depending on where you live in Los Angeles, for me, I probably, you know, $30,000 up front, which is very difficult on a resident salary to figure out how to come up with that. And then on day one, you have zero members. So your income is zero. So your rent, your rent, overhead for, you know, someone who's starting a new practice, overhead's going to include basically your rent, any staff that you have, electronic medical records, insurance, both malpractice, liability, um, and then medical supplies. So medications, if you want to dispense them, vaccines, uh, all of these things are costs that when you open, you have no revenue. So some people recommend starting with an insurance-based practice and building up a panel of patients. And then once you're at a couple like a thousand patients sending a letter to try to convert. A lot of people recommended that to me. Uh, the way that I'm bootstrapping my practice is I actually work uh, hospital shifts on weekends and I work some, uh, I see some patients in the hospital during the week as well, mostly weekends though, basically to try to pay my overhead while I'm building my panel. And so it's extremely scary to go into uh, a practice without some financial backing, which I didn't have, but it's basically a lot of work, which uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. If you're expecting it to be less work than residency to open your own business and try to bootstrap it, I work almost every single weekend day in the hospital. I think that's a, a great point too, because, um, there's a lot of security in going right into the hospital and starting to work right away, right out of practice. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, you know, to, you took the little, the harder road where you kind of started your own business, your own model from scratch without any you know, guaranteed pay, you know, you're kind of going out on a limb, which takes a lot of courage to do that. And it's probably a big reason why a lot of doctors don't actually go and start doing that right out of residency because, you know, they've been in school for a long time. They want to start earning money. Yeah. What, how do you think, like, what's, what's something that could be done to make this process easier, get more doctors involved in primary care and, and more willing to kind of go out on a limb and start their own practice? 
it's it's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. You have to be working, willing to work extremely hard. So I think in my first month when I was open, a lot of days I would literally be sitting in the office, not doing much because I didn't have patients, trying to kind of network and get people in here. Um, and then on the weekend or nights, I was working a lot of night shifts and weekend shifts to try to pay for my practice. As I've grown, um, I've been slowly cutting back on shifts as I can, but it's very difficult. And in the short term, you know, you will make more money uh, if you go straight into whether it's primary care hospitalist or uh, go to fellowship and then end up having a job. You'll make more money if you in the beginning, if you go into one of those, but the, you know, the, the, the upside is much higher, obviously by starting your own practice. So I think being willing to work is one important thing. I was really hoping to find a partner when I opened because I felt that if I had a partner, um, potentially we could take care of the practice together and each work potentially as a hospitalist every other week to grow the bit so that way we could both afford the practice and make some money. I had a hard time finding someone else willing to, you know, take this on with me. I, I looked very hard for it. So what, what have been your biggest struggles starting so far? That's a great question. So I think part of it has been the general lack of business education that we get during medical school which is essentially zero so not only do you not learn how to uh start a direct primary care practice you don't learn how to start a regular practice you don't know how insurance works you don't know how billing works you don't know how any of it works so that was a huge challenge i read a lot in anticipation of opening my business so I read books about starting my own uh, direct primary care. There was a book called The Official Guide to Starting Your Own Direct Primary Care by, I wrote this down because I wanted to mention this, Douglas Ferrago. Uh, there's another book called The Medical Entrepreneur by Dr. Stephen Hacker. Those were both good resources for me. Um, I actually was a business minor in college, so I, had, I at least can do basic accounting and some things that I still am doing uh, to this day for my practice, but the challenge really is learning how do you set up a business? How do you do payroll? How do you do your books? How do you make sure the insurance is uh, going right? All of these things. Um, I would say one thing that helped me tremendously is I wasn't able to find a partner, but I was able to um, find someone to co-op space with who was already in business. So what I mean by that is I rent part of an, uh, I share an office with someone who also, who was already in business and had staff, at least for the front part of the office. So I didn't have to completely set up the staff, the medical records, all that stuff. So some of it was already done for me, but it's that part of it's difficult. I think the second part of it, I'm sorry to speak for so long in a row. The second part of it is how to get patients. So in the business world, we call it uh, customer acquisition. But in the medical world, I'll call it, how do we get patients? And so that is, a, is difficult. So you have to, first you have to teach what, what the model is so people know what they're getting into. And then things that I found to be effective, I've gotten many patients from my social media. I've gotten some patients now through other doctors who um, 
feel that some of their patients, they just are too complex for them to really adequately take care of in a regular internal medicine setting. So some uh, colleagues have sent patients to me. um, And and those are kind of the two primary drivers of my business so far. Awesome. How did you, what is your business, how is your business model actually set up? So you have an office uh, with the concierge model, you don't necessarily need as much employees. You don't need something like billers and things like that. So you really, I guess you just need a secretary or do you need somebody kind of doing your finances or what kind of, go, what goes into that just starting out? It's a wonderful question and one that's still an evolving thing for me <laughs> to this day. So when I, there, there are some things when you take insurance you need billers, you need coders, you need a lot more employees. In my business, in my uh, current uh, business, I have a front desk person and an MA who can draw blood and can do like vital signs, and that's my entire staff. Um, the MA does so. You know, again, as I was explaining, we do um, home visits and things like that too. So. Uh, Patients who, let's say, are homebound for whatever reason, they had a stroke or they're just sick and they can't come to the office, we do have the ability to send our staff to their homes to draw blood, even if for routine labs so that they don't necessarily need to be seen by the doctor. Um, but basically, I, I tr- as of now, that's my bare minimum complete um, in a direct primary care model as opposed to a traditional model. So certainly there's less visits per day. So you don't need like five people in the front. You probably need one person in the front. There's let you don't there's no billing or coding per se. So you so you don't need a biller or coder per se. So all of my billing I have on uh, basically auto pay. So whether the people are paying annually or monthly, I collect credit card information. I've been doing all the billing and books myself for the most part. I have a biller who I go over things with or with the books with at the end of the month. But basically right now I put in the card information and have it processing uh, once a month. And then uh, those process, those process payments automatically go into my QuickBooks account, which is where I do all my bookkeeping. Um, and so again, when I'm talking about working hard, it's you're working a full day and then you're going home and you're doing things like the billing and the books and all these things. So, it's it's definitely a challenge, but it's really rewarding also to to see to watch yourself be able to practice the way that you want to. And you have a lot of freedom. I think that's the real that's the real thing that's important to me at least when I want to practice is the freedom of not having you know someone telling you, hey, you have to come in at this time every day, or you have to come and do this. And if you don't, we're going to fire you. And here's a bunch of paperwork from the insurance company. So it's that freedom, really, that I think is what's really valuable. And I don't know if you want to relay that to people that yeah. can hear. Yeah, so the so what Rami was saying was one of the things he's finding that he finds attractive about the thought of doing direct primary care is that you have a lot of freedom in the way that you practice because you're not uh, subject to Medicare and other insurance companies telling you what to do. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'll give you a, a little example. If you spend 45 minutes with a patient in your office and you forget to write down their height and weight and thus have not taken their BMI measurement, Medicare will pay you $0.00, zero cents despite the 45 minutes that you spent with them. 
And things like this are examples of the difficulty of working with insurance. The truth, I will mention this, that people in my practice are still getting medications and other things through their insurance. So it's not like I don't have to fight with insurance companies sometimes to get prior auths, to get medicines done, to get uh, medications approved and things like that. But there's much, much, much less dealing with insurance companies for sure. Part of that is because you have less patients, but part of that is because if you're not billing Medicare, you're not subject to all of their rules and regulations. Awesome. And what do you think makes your practice unique in the way that you practice? Well, I think, you know, I think I tend to have a healthy uh, suspicion of some traditional medical thing. So I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm a Western medicine trained MD. I did my residency at Cedar sinai Medical Center in one of the biggest, uh, most prestigious hospitals in the country. I was trained in Western medicine, but I think I have, I sometimes think that in, me, in medicine we're over treating, mm-hmm. we're over diagnosing, over treating a lot of things instead of getting to the root problem, Absolutely. which is often diet and health related. And so one of the unique things I try to do is really push people to be the healthiest version of themselves and to stop making excuses. I challenge people. Like the truth is I, I challenge people to be healthier. So I'm, I don't like, I, I understand your excuse. You're busy. It's hard to eat healthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, I will challenge you on that and try to get you doing better. I'll go to your house and throw out the crap in your refrigerator um, and, and Dr. Jeff, and, I love that you said that. Oh, you have. Yeah. So, so I think that's one of the things that unique. I'm very blunt. You know, I'm blunt about things with my patients. I, I, luckily, you know, I think when you get to know your patients well, and they're kind of, you know, they're your patients, they're your friends, whatever. They're you get close enough that you can be honest and have a real conversation with them about how to improve their health. And so I think that's something that's unique about my practice. Everything that's wrong about medicine, the reason why this is the case, all goes back to the fact that when insurance reimbursement is terrible and you have to see 30 people in a day and you only have 15 minutes with them, you just, you don't have time, unfortunately, to deal with these things. Like my patients who have, you know, I, I think a big thing uh, in my in what I found in my population is that if there's things like, even if it's something like anxiety that's not being addressed, if someone has anxiety, they're going to have other medical problems. They're not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to eat well. They're not going to be able to exercise. They're not going to be able to take their pills when they're supposed to. They're not going to be able to do anything until they have you know the underlying thing addressed. And when you don't have time to actually talk to someone as a human being and hear where they're coming from. You can tell someone, hey, you should diet and exercise. You should quit smoking. But you know, when I'm trying to get someone to quit smoking, I text them every single day. You're not smoking today, are you? You're not smoking today, are you? And I'll send them, you know, or I'll talk to them and and really, bat, number one, badger them. But number two, give them the skills they need, whether it's you know referrals to other therapists to talk to and things like that. But I think really addressing people's personal issues in a is much sometimes more important 
than getting their their blood pressure down five points with a, with a blood pressure pill. Awesome. And do you use your tele? You have a telemedicine. You do telemedicine consultations as well. Do yep. you use that to also kind of stay on top of your patients? So the question was about my uh, my telemedicine platform on my website. So my telemedicine platform uh, is really used for multiple things. So number one, any of my patients who are members of the practice can do little check-ins if they have a sore throat, if they have whatever, they can talk to me face-to-face. It's an encrypted uh, platform on my website and I, I can e-prescribe medications as needed through it and I can document on it as well. Um, People uh, from right now, I'm only able to see patients in California because California is the only state I'm licensed in. But basically, anyone who's anywhere in California can see me for both urgent care type of issues or um, what often I've been getting uh, people coming to me for is people with, again, kind of either unsolved or complicated issues. So whether that's, you know, chronic abdominal pain or something that hasn't been diagnosed correctly or any other kind of issue that hasn't been resolved sometimes i'll meet someone through a virtual visit that lives somewhere in california and if they want me to take on the case i can kind of then have take them on as a patient and kind of go through all their old medical records and then see if we can make a diagnosis and i've had cases where people have had ongoing issues for you know months if not years that through that through a virtual visit and actually spending time i'm able to kind of figure out what's going on with them what is the cost effectiveness like? Let's say that you have someone and how would you compare paying insurance every month, which is like could be like 250 to $500 a month, and to actually just saying no to insurance and just enrolling in a direct primary care practice and then maybe doing like the catastrophe insurance coverage as well? So that's a great question and one of the most common questions that I get regarding direct primary care. So what I, what I tell people is if it's comfortable to still afford insurance, I would get still insurance because whether you're seeing specialists or other doctors, you may need insurance still. It's still get insurance. In my practice, the visits are free. You don't need insurance for visits, but you do still need insurance for medications, um, imaging, if you need an MRI, if you need other things. So in general... I think people can get slightly less expensive insurance uh, if they're paying for a direct primary care doctor and they can usually go to more of like a catastrophic coverage. So what that means is your insurance will cover a major, if you get cancer, if you have to go to the hospital, it'll pay for that. But it's not, it doesn't pay as much towards things like co-pays for visits, which you don't necessarily need because you've already enrolled in a direct track and direct primary care practice. I think Unfortunately, the way it works now is people still kind of are stuck being in, being un, being or having some type of insurance, even in my practice, because you know, God forbid, something really bad happens, they need something for that possible catastrophe. So um, a lot of my, especially my young, healthy-ish patients, have tended to go towards a more catastrophic, cheaper coverage, um, and then just pay for me and so the total cost of me plus their catastrophic coverage may be less than it would have been for kind of like a more expensive policy and what about people that just don't have insurance and would rather you know 
so you have a primary care doctor that's going to take care of them. They're generally healthy. They don't have insurance, which a lot of people still in this country don't have insurance. I am more than happy to take on people that don't have insurance. I don't need people to have insurance to see me. Uh, through our lab in our building and our imaging center in our building, we get really great discounts on labs and imaging. So it's probably cheaper, but I would always warn everyone and not necessarily recommend that people have no insurance just because of the small chance of something like a catastrophe happen. And the funny thing is when you think of the word insurance, when you think about it in any context other than medicine, so whether that's car insurance, insurance on your house, all other insurance on your car, your insurance isn't if your car breaks down, your insurance isn't if the motor stops running, those things you go to the mechanic and they fix it and you pay them. Your insurance is in case your car gets stolen or you get in a car accident, a catastrophic thing happens. But with healthcare, unfortunately, these things have been kind of grouped together into one thing that they really have no business being linked. Um, and so, and I, I guess this is a bigger discussion, but I think the federal government would save a tremendous amount of money by paying something like, if they could pay $50 per person per month per doctor, uh, as opposed to paying for the huge, huge, huge cost of Medicare, and then a separate uh, insurance-based policy, it would save a lot of money for the country. I love that point that you made about insurance being, that the intended purpose of insurance is to be catastrophe coverage. You know, you get house insurance if anything bad happens to your to your house, but in medicine, we use it as this blanket for everything, which which is like, no wonder it's not working. That's not the point of insurance, and I love that you made that point. Um, so I'm, I'm my next my next question is, for you know for young people that are still like about to go into residency or finish up medical school like myself, um, yep. Yep. how do you what would you recommend? For Sorry, my to battery. Start? Oh, that's all right. Um, I gotta plug into the the source here. Yeah, keep going. All right, I'll let, I'll, let, I'll let you get resituated. No, I'm first. good. I'm back. I'm back. Okay. Um, so what what's your advice to like me or to say other medical students or to residents who are getting ready to go out into the field and start practicing? What what should they do to kind of if they really want to learn about this model and if they want to start practicing it? What should they do? What are some good steps to take? So anyone first, I will offer anyone interested in learning more. I'm happy to talk to people more about it personally. That's one thing. I think if every doctor decided to go into direct primary care. The system would be better, patients would be happier, doctors would be happier. So I'm, I'm glad and happy to spread the word on direct primary care as much as I can. Um, that being said, in terms of resources, again, when I was starting out, that Atlas MD podcast, that was fantastic. I wrote these three things down because they were very important for me. There was a book called The Official Guide to Starting Your Own Direct Primary Care by Douglas Farrago. You can find it on Amazon. There was something called The Medical Entrepreneur by Stephen Hacker, also uh, from Amazon. But the bottom line is, if, if you want to do this type of practice, you can do it. There's nothing, uh, there's, there's no barriers to entry, but the barrier is the willingness to have lean years when you start and work extremely hard, both in the practice and outside the practice, to build it up. Uh, once you have 
the norm, the amount of patients you end up wanting to have, your lifestyle will be very different, but I think much more rewarding. So a typical day for a mature direct primary care practice, and I think that's what's a typical day for a mature direct primary care practice. A typical day is about three to five, maybe 10 at the very, very most in some practices visits per day. Um, The rest of the time is free time, uh, basically to email, text as necessary and, and kind of deal in the background getting, you know, I personally, this is something else that I didn't even mention is that when my, when, if I send someone to a cardiologist, I'll per, I'll personally speak to the cardiologist afterwards and, and get feedback of how the appointment went. So you just have a lot more time. Uh, um, but I think, you know, there's no perfect roadmap to success with this thing. There's a lot of trial and error, just like any other business. And, you know, I've found that it's extremely rewarding, but it's a lot of work. And, you know, still now, you know, I'm about half a year in, um, I'm still working hard to figure out how to really get more patients. What has been the toughest part so far? Um, I think, I think there are times, so I'm not one to do this, but I would imagine those first few months when you're seeing one visit a day or three a week or whatever, and you have one or two patients on, on retainer, you're losing a tremendous amount of money. You are watching your bank account go negative after you already just put in all this money to start your business. And, um, for me, I started moonlighting doing hospital work where, um, I wasn't getting paid for like 60 to 90 days after I started. So I had a period where I had pretty much no income and was negative a lot of money every month. And so that being able to just say, you know what, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to do this. I'm going to just keep working. Ah, sorry. (laughs) I'm just going to keep working and make this happen. That I think was definitely the biggest challenge. I think one thing, you know, going straight out of residency and trying to open a practice like this. Another challenge is you don't have as many personal relationships with practicing doctors who may be willing to send you patients. So I'm lucky enough to have done residency uh, at Cedar sinai which is re- very close to where my practice is, and I'm still on staff at Cedars and uh, hospitalized patients there. And so I have a lot, a lot, a lot of attendings, both internal medicine as well as specialists in that hospital that trust me extremely well to take care of their patients. So because of that, I do get some referrals from other doctors, but if you were to set up a practice in a place that you didn't know, well, it would be difficult, you know? So I grew, you know, I have, I live, I, I grew up where my practice is and I did my training where my practice is. So those are both ways that I get some business too. Are you able to offer any other services in your practice? Like even, uh, cash-based uh, services, um, services like you know, like preventative wellness, cosmetic, anything like that that you supplement your practice with. So, I, as I was saying, some of this I have relationships with a lot of specialized um, labs that do like things like genetic testing, micronutrient testing, food sensitivity testing. Some of these. Um, we are able to make a little bit on when we send the labs basically. Um, but it's not a huge source of revenue. I have 
uh, I'm working on building a uh, home kind of like IV service where we can have our nurses house to drips for things flu, diarrhea, um, you know, nausea, uh, and then also some wellness formula. So we're doing things like like for skin and hair, nails, IV drip kind of things. I I personally don't have cosmetic stuff in my office because I I think I want to make it clear that my office is very you know this is where real medicine is done and I don't want to confuse the customer by having um, you know someone doing Botox and someone doing this other stuff because that's really not what I do and not my interest um, so those would be ways theoretically to supplement your income for sure it's just not exactly what in my vision for what I wanted a practice to be, that's what I'm holding firm and doing. And I'm believing that one day it's going to work out. And so I found that if I stick to my belief system and I practice exactly the way I want to practice, that people are coming and my patients are referring other patients and you know, it's going to eventually work, but it's going to take time. I think, what I, the way I've told people in the past is I'm, as long as I keep thinking of these as my fellowship years, like if I give myself three years where, you know, other, some of my friends are doing cardiology, they're doing GI, they have, they're doing oncology, they have three, four more years of training. So as long as I remember that I have three years to grow my business, then it kind of makes me not compare myself to people that went into that went into like a salary position somewhere i love that mindset so much even myself thinking about what i want to do in the future i kind of thought like you know i probably would rather not do fellowship and go out into the real world and start practicing and use that as my fellowship and i really love that you just said that and it kind of takes it it allows you to persevere a little more because you can look at it as you're getting paid a resident salary and you're you know, learning the experience that it takes to build a business and, you know, the real life, real world things that go on, which is, in my opinion, more valuable. Um, but I, I admire that a lot. And thank you for sharing that with us. Um, you've been using your Instagram to market yourself and to, you know, build your practice. How do you think that'll change the game in the future? And, you know, I, I just in the last year, you know, I started an account myself, you started an account. There's so many medical accounts out there and i think that it's a good opportunity for doctors and future doctors to really put themselves put themselves out there and you know make a name for themselves so later on in their career they can actually use that and you know build have some trust built with people and you know you bring more people into their practices so that is a so uh, Dr. Brahmi is asking about how I've tried to use social media as a means to uh, get patients and tell patients more about myself and things like that. Um, so I will say this: when I started my Instagram, many, many, many doctors uh, that are some of them being you know wonderful mentors of mine that are very prestigious doctors and very big hospitals, UCLA and Cedar Sinai. Um, were very scared for me to start this. They were worried about, you know, what are your patients going to think? No one's going to take you seriously as a physician if you're on social media. I think that one of the biggest problems with medicine is its inability to adapt to the fact that it's 2018. So 
I couldn't disagree more. I was scared because of all this negative advice I was getting, but just decided, you know what, I disagree. I'm going to try this thing. And I think on social media, and I wish I did more like YouTube stuff. I really just do Instagram. I'm so busy that it's even hard for me to post on Instagram once or twice a week, honestly. Um, but it gives you the opportunity to let your patients know your philosophy, let your patients know how you think, how you operate. It lets your patients know you. And with that, they may decide that you're exactly the type of person that they want to trust to kind of be the one in charge of their health. And so for me, it's been a really important thing. I think now that my Instagram has grown, I've had people reach out about doing more mainstream media type of stuff, which really wasn't my intention when I started. But I, I really think that I've kind of struck a nerve with a lot of the stuff I talk about in terms of medicine being so broken and so unable to be adapted. And I want to spread that word. And so my mission of spreading that word has become just as an important part of my social media as it has been to attract patients and customers. So I think right now it's really been important from both of those aspects. Um, I think in terms of, you know, that, that last point about medicine being so broken and un, unadapting, you know, the, so I mentioned this thing earlier, it was a while ago. So people who are just on the live or listening to the podcast now, I mentioned some, uh, things that I use like remote monitoring. So you know, just off the top of my head, I have Bluetooth uh, thermometer. I have Bluetooth blood pressure cuff. I have Bluetooth. Um, I have an EKG single lead uh, machine that records EKGs for my patients who are in and out of atrial fibrillation. Um, I have a lot of things that insurance would pay me zero dollars and zero cents to use, and they take up time. So a normal doctor is actually disincentivized to ever try any of these things because if someone's using a blood pressure cuff and recording it, then they're going to have to look at it or they're going to be liable for it. But with my model, I'm able to, you know, use a lot of these things. I think if someone had a lot of investment like Silicon Valley money and could kind of put all this together, there would be a way to, and hope that maybe me one day we'll see. But, uh, <laughs> it would be possible to change medicine like in such a huge, huge way from the way it's been for the last 30 years. There's, there's literally zero reason why a healthy person for a checkup should go sit in an office next to 20 people coughing with the flu. It just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Dr. Jeff, this has been a great conversation. I want to ask you, how can people connect with you? So the best way to reach me, if you're on, uh, Instagram, you can reach me at Jeff Toll MD at, at uh, Jeff Toll MD. Uh, I do have a Facebook that I don't really use very often, but it's also Jeff Toll MD. Um, I'm gonna hopefully be starting a YouTube soon. I keep telling myself I will, but I've been very busy and haven't actually done it yet. But theoretically, in 2018, this is gonna happen. My email, if you want to reach me, is Jeff at Jeff Toll uh, My website is Jeff Toll uh, from there, you can if you are interested in a virtual visit or just want to send an email. Um, so I put some time open time slots for virtual visits, 
but really at this point since I've been busier, that was kind of when I opened my practice, I was kind of just on the virtual thing all day, but now that I'm a lot busier, um, I really recommend people call the office to set up a virtual for the future. So the secretary, uh, my secretary, uh, Dorka, who's a wonderful human being, um, has my whole schedule and she'll know when she can possibly fit you in for a virtual. Awesome. Um, I think a, another question is some, a lot of med students, like there's a million med students who send me messages and I try to answer some of them. It's really hard to answer all of them. I think in future, once I start doing more YouTube stuff, I'll, I'll ask people to send me questions and kind of maybe that'll be, I have a couple things in mind for things I want to do in YouTube, but one of them will be kind of answering questions. Awesome. And just one last question, and I think you've answered this already throughout most of this podcast, but what does it mean to you to go beyond medicine? And I think you've already are doing that every day. So I think being able to spend time with someone, being able to get to know your patient, being able to really understand like family dynamics and why someone's not taking their medicine or why someone's eating unhealthy that's what medicine should be. We're, we're supposed to, you know, we go through train. Well, when a lot of us decide to become doctors, we have this vision of being a healer about helping people. And we don't have a vision of spending five to 10 minutes rushing through a visit and then walking to the next room. So I think, you know, both in my practice from that standpoint, I'm trying to go beyond medicine. But then in the bigger picture, again, as I was saying, I think as I've spent this last year kind of starting my practice and talking about the problems in medicine, I would like to really be able to eventually spread some of these ideas and figure out how more patients and doctors can go into this type of uh, practice. Hey podcast, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope we brought you some practical, good advice that you can apply to your life. Guys, if you could please do us the favor of sharing this, telling people about it, leaving us a comment, subscribing, all that will help us grow and will help us spread our message. Also, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to our website and click support and it will help us grow this podcast and continue doing what we are doing and bringing you more high-quality guests like the one you just heard. Thank you, guys. Peace.